Hey y'all, this is EVA, and you're listening to Woke Woke Docs, a podcast about the lives of women of color in medicine and health justice. Today, we are super excited to have Jasmine and Desiree, two phenomenal Black women from the Black Organizing Project, speak to us about policing in schools and their work through BOP to end the school-to-prison pipeline. The Black Organizing Project is a Black member-led community organization working for racial, social, and economic justice through grassroots organizing and community building in Oakland, California. In this episode, Desiree and Jasmine share their own experiences with the school-to-prison pipeline, what drew them to this work, and their recent successes, including the recent elimination of police officers from the Oakland Unified School District, a major victory. As you listen, we hope you have the chance to reflect on how policing in schools affects the mental, emotional, and physical health of our young people and are inspired to continue this work with them. So stay woke, y'all. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we do. I am so excited to be here with you ladies today. I think we're going to have a really great episode. But before we get into our episode, as always, we have to start with a check-in question. So today's check-in question is... What is your guilty pleasure? This can be an old guilty pleasure. This can be a new guilty pleasure. Um, And yes, I'll let you guys just be as creative as you want with it. I will start with mine. I think my newest guilty pleasure, and by newest, I mean literally as of like an hour ago, is the show Selling Sunset, this real estate show on Netflix, which honestly... My friend just told me, like, it's going to be one of those shows that you hate, that you love, and she's not wrong. (laughs) I already am watching it and, like, regretting having started it, but knowing that I'm going to absolutely finish it. Like, I'm already totally committed. I'm only, like, 40 minutes in. So I think that is probably my guilty pleasure for right now. But, you know, they stay changing. So it's this today, but it might be something next week. Um, and I'm going to pass the question to Nicole. What is your guilty pleasure? Um, my guilty pleasure, I'm like trying to kind of not make it a guilty pleasure because thanks society making me feel guilty for it. But um, <laughs> s'mores Pop-Tarts. Yo, I got some on Saturday night. I like did a Target run and then Sunday and Monday, like they're gone. It was a box. It wasn't just like one packet. It was a box. Like I have... I just love the s'mores Pop-Tarts. They're so good, but only the s'more, like the s'more ones. Like I tried the strawberry ones and I was like, I can't believe I would have this for breakfast every day. Like they're so sweet, like so sweet. But growing up, I was like, yeah, sure. And now I'm like, nope, I can't. (laughs) You like the brown sugar though. Have you tried the I have, but it has cinnamon. So I would die. (laughs) Okay. Yep. (laughs) that's a concern oh like literally i thought i thought we were being cheeky like i was (laughs) like no i am definitely okay yeah yeah exactly (laughs) um so i will pass it to jasmine okay so mine's kind of similar to eva um and my guilty pleasure is reality tv Um, (laughs) and I always feel so shamed for even saying that because I guess like 
when you're in this kind of woke work, there's this perception that, you know, you're just reading, you know, bell hooks all the time and just really in watching documentaries and stuff. So, you know, I think I get a little scared of the judgment, but I love, love, love reality TV, you know, uh, 90s baby. So grew up on the television when it first started. And so it kind of ranges really from anything I could get my hands on. So like Storage Wars to Chopped to Housewives, you know, that's really the guilty part when it gets to those kind of shows. But I just love like being able to turn on the TV and kind of disconnect and not like be super deep or analytical. And so that definitely um, has increased during quarantine. And, you know, I'm um, you know, I'm not afraid to say it right now. So, yeah. And I will pass that one uh, to Des. Um, I, okay, so I have two. One is kind of like, it's a funny guilty pleasure because I shouldn't get pleasure out of doing this, but I don't know why. But this guilty pleasure is incessantly buying books that I am, I know I'm not going to read or I don't have time to read. Like I just, I probably just bought like six books at one time the other day. And I have a box of books that I've never read. Why am I this way? Like, I, I really don't know. So I feel like that's a guilty. And it's like a sneaky thing. Like as I'm buying them, like <laughs> I'll probably read this like five years from now. Um, <laughs> and then I think another guilty pleasure is um, also TV. And my new guilty pleasure, which I started last night was Lovecraft Country. I don't know if you guys know about that coming out oh my god it's on hbo it has uh journey Smollett and like all these other people in it but it's basically like a kind of a period piece i think like harlem renaissance type of era but it's mixed with supernatural like stranger things type of stuff and it's it's strange but it has a lot of like black history woven into it um weird but yeah if you watch it you'll you'll probably love it too so those are my two things and i will pass it to burn bernie Feel the burn. Um, my guilty pleasure. Okay, so I have two. The first is Chick-fil-A, because Chick-fil-A. <laughs> like problematic politics and like damn, like that sauce though. How like and okay, plant-based and Chick-fil-A chicken fingers. Like literally people call me like chicken fingers Bernie till I was like honestly 24. So here we are. I'm 26. And um the second one is um, similar to what Jasmine said, um, I think a lot of people like think it's all about kind of like reading these like radical excerpts, and then of course like that's true. And also like you can also find me watching the Great British Baking Show, um, yes. <laughs> which EVA actually introduced me to, and everyone's like, "What? Like, why are there? Like, why do I hear so many British voices in like Bernie's bedroom as she's like eating dinner?" And it's like I actually really enjoy watching these British people like make desserts. And um, I guess I'm really yeah. I feel like I'm exposing a part of myself, but it's true. Like they're Brits really are the funny. best. Brits yeah. are the best <laughs> for real. I'm so happy I got you on that. It's so hard to get Bernie to watch TV, guys. So I feel like this is actually an accomplishment that I got her to watch a baking show that's like not based on America. <laughs> I feel like myself. This is like one of the, this is what my victory is. I want to say this is my victory of the week. Um, I love that. Love it. Amazing. Oh, I love knowing people's guilty pleasures. Maybe next time we can ask what are people's toxic traits. Like the fact that I love Hamilton and I know I shouldn't love Hamilton, but I love it and I will sing it till my dying day. You can play that at my funeral. I don't care. 
but okay, we'll say that for another check-in question another day. Um, but anyways, uh, for our listeners, we are so, so lucky to have Des and Jasmine from Black Organizing Pro- Project based in Oakland, um, Black community member led, and a lot of Black women led. So we are really, really lucky to have you guys here to speak about the work that you guys are doing. And we're so, so, so excited for our listeners to hear, um, you know, when we were thinking about anti-racism, we really wanted to think about schools and policing in schools. And obviously that's a big part of the work that you guys do. Um, so I'd love to hear more about like what, well, I kind of already know, but for our listeners, what Black Organizing Project is, if you guys could talk about that. And then if each of you guys can just share like how you got into it, that would be great. Yeah, I could start us off and then Des let me know, you know, we'll just piggyback off of each other. But um, so BOP, Black Organizing Project, or BOP, um, is an 11-year-old grassroots all-Black um, organization founded in Oakland. Um, and we really came out of the need, um, you know, our founding executive director um, and her colleagues um, existed in a, another intermediary organization. It was a multiracial organizing organization called Center for Third World Organizing. Um, and in that space, they, you know, noticed that even in multiracial spaces or people of color spaces, a lot of Black issues uh, were invisibilized. Um, and so Black Organizing Project actually started off as a project, really, um, of that intermediary to see, like, what would it look like if we invested dollars um, and time and intention into Black organizing specifically? Um, and so that really means um, taking the time to invest in the leaders of the community, the most impacted community members, to address uh, these, these grand systems of oppression um, rooted in white supremacy, anti-Black racism. And, and so Bob started in 2000 with the purpose of really um, building community here in Oakland, uh, leadership development of the most impacted uh, community members um, with the intention to revive our spirit. You know, as a community, you know, we're the most impacted and we're faced with a lot of uh, things in society, you know, and so we think it's important to gather as a community to address these solutions together, you know, from a community collective perspective, like we don't necessarily need people coming in, saving us, telling us what's right and wrong. And so at BOP, we really believe that uh, the it should be centered in community and that us as most impacted should be leading the fight. Um, and so that's really like the grounding of our work and what the spirit of what our work is grounded in. Um, and that in our campaign, our boss campaign, which you mentioned, uh, Des really works really closely on the boss campaign, but um, it's no, it's called Bettering Our School System. And that was launched in 2011 um, after the murder of a young man named Raheem Brown, um, who was murdered by a school police officer. Um, so we found out in 2011 that OUSD, Oakland Unified School District, was invested in three levels of policing. And so that was uh, the security guard officers, that was uh, its own police department, and that was also contracts with uh, of the city police. Um, and so when we found that our members were really enraged and disappointed in how the school board reacted to the murder, uh, really dismissing the family. And so we decided that we would um, you know, create this campaign, Better Not School System, in the name of Raheem Brown, but really to address the larger uh, system of criminalization of youth, mass incarceration, and the school to prison pipeline. Um, and I'll stop there real quick. So I see Des might want to jump in. Yeah, I was, um, I was just going to kind of vocalize a lot of the same things that you ended on with the BOSS campaign, which also kind of leads into 
the next question, I don't know if I should just go ahead and kind of, you know, melt into that, but um, yeah, the school, so ending the criminalization of black and brown students was something that I myself um, had experienced. Although I got involved with BOP, I think about four years ago, I had already had like a multitude of experiences being um, pushed out of, I think at least two different schools, over police, suspended, expelled. Um, I was really kind of like, you know, a moniker of that student that was always painted as like disruptive or a bad student or whatever else. So I actually found BOP because I kind of made a vow to myself that I wanted to do social justice work. I had no idea of their campaign. I had no idea that it was directly, you know, like affected to things that I had experienced. So I think it was also very divine. Um, but, you know, my experience being a very vocal, outgoing Black girl, um, I was always, I always felt like I was targeted. I was always sent, um, you know, referred to the office, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, like early on. Um, in middle school, um, I think I got like involuntarily transferred because I had so many referrals and stuff like that. And everything was really just a behavior infraction. And by that, it really was just me um, questioning authority, you know, being one of the only students that really was bold enough to stand up and question why we had to obey um, in a certain way and act a certain way on school grounds and why the culture was the way that it was. Um, and then, you know, going into an older age in high school, I ended up being expelled um, before I could finish my first year of high school. So I was really robbed of that experience. I was never, I never was let back into public high school. I was out of school for almost a year after being expelled. I went to a continuation school where I was in the same class as 11 and 12 year olds and we had no homework. Um, and so at that point, I was really kind of identifying like, okay, it's beyond a behavior thing. It's beyond me being a bad student. It's obvious that they don't want to educate me and they don't want to educate these other students because why in, you know, why on earth would they treat us this way? They would, you know, disenfranchise and just give us this kind of disadvantage um, by not teaching us, by not giving us homework, by not giving us adequate school sites. I mean, the experience was horrible. So me as a young youth, I took it upon myself, like I wanna be educated, I wanna be somebody, and I deserve that. I deserve the same education as affluent you know, students. So um, I put myself back in continuation school and I ended up graduating a year early. Um, that was a huge, you know, a huge acknowledgement for me because I had, I've been going through that power struggle with the school system since early elementary school. Um, so I think then moving forward and um, meeting Bob, joining the work, it was really transformative and healing for me. Um, and it continues to heal me because even um, I think Bernie, I think it was either you or Nicole um, that had mentioned that you were kind of moved to tears watching our vic victory video. Um, and I, in that moment too, I literally cried and I was so moved because I just was put back to that place of being like a 14 year old student who was crying day after day because I felt like I was targeted on a daily basis and there was nothing that I can do. I would go to school feeling great and wanting to be productive and by like second period I'm sent home. Um, so that's, you know, that's just my experience. I know it's an experience of a lot of other black and brown students. Um, so like I said, just meeting Bob, joining the work, it's been really transformative. I'm meeting people like Jasmine and other people on the team that I can work with and we can literally create change, literally impact these students' lives. It's huge, you know. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, Des. Um, I feel like what struck me about what you just said was 
it's that it wasn't that you didn't have the desire, like you didn't have the desire to learn. You wanted to learn. You showed up wanting to be there and wanting to be present. And then for them to sort of rob you of that experience and for them to force you into a situation where they're going to deprive you of that experience is really, um, it's really saddening to hear. And Bernie knows this, but I like have recently been doing like this other like little side project. And I was also learning about the school to prison pipeline. And there was this documentary called For Akim that I watched. It's on Hulu and Amazon Prime. And it's about a young uh, black woman in St. Louis, Missouri, who basically is going through the whole like school to prison pipeline thing too. And she was sent to an alternative school. Um, but actually I ended up chatting with her after the documentary because I thought I was really like moved by it. And I was talking to her and she was saying like, honestly, that alternative school was better than any of the public schools that I had been to because they actually gave us a lot of resources. They made us stay there super late. And I was like, well, I guess I'm, I'm glad that you got that experience, but then also why, why did it take you going to a courthouse and them telling you that you couldn't go to any other public school and forcing you to go to this school that's like out of the way and all this stuff for you to get that, to get that education that you wish that you had in your regular public school. So it's, it's interesting for me just hearing like the two di sort of different sides of it, like both, you know, you wanting to learn and then being put in a situation where they like did not give you that opportunity. And then also her feeling like she was really deprived in her like regular school setting. And then I like, could only get the kind of education that she wanted in this alternative school. So it was sort of like both ways really are <laughs> less than ideal. <laughs> like we should just keep the kids in the school that they were originally supposed to be in, but I don't say much. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, that's super enlightening to, and cool to see how your story sort of come full circle back to Bach and the work that you're doing. Um, and yeah, to EVA to that point, um, I think even in our membership, we've heard that, you know, when they get to the alternative school, um, there is resources there, but I feel like that's a funny thing about the system. So they wait till you, they kick the youth or the adults all the way out of these institutions. And then it's like, okay, you know, we'll provide you with the resources that you need to kind of get through. Like we find that even with people like recidivism in the uh, criminal justice system, like some people would prefer to stay in jail uh, because it's a roof over their head. They'll get to see a doctor if something happens to them. And because all the things that Des had mentioned as far as our communities being disenfranchised, for some, that is the better um, solution. Um, and so <clears throat> a lot of our campaign work over the years is saying that our kids and our youth don't need to be pushed out in order to get the services they need. Um, I know there's a few... Um, you know, alternative schools in Oakland, Ralph Bunch. And so, you know, we've, we've heard great things about some of the programs there. Again, but by that time, you know, if you're a student, perhaps like Des, you've gone through kind of this uh, rabbit race and hamster wheel that they put you through. Who knows if you even really have the fight into you to be able to even engage in those environments, you know? And so I think everyone's experience is uh, unique, but we have heard, you know, both sides of the coin too, working with youth in Oakland. So. Um, yeah, I was just going to add on to that and just say, I, I mean, I think that we're kind of echoing the same thing, but it's really just a matter of the intentional disenfranchisement of our students happening on school grounds in the neighborhoods that they have the right. I mean, education is a right. 
they have the right to go to these schools and be educated adequately at that. We're not even talking about, you know, the lack of support and funding for school sites in Oakland specifically. We're talking about schools that have lead in the water, that have, you know, all kind of egregious things that add on to the student's experience. Um, and so, you know, we're asking for something quite basic. We're asking for the same education um, and where the education isn't even culturally relevant. There's all these things that add on to the experience that the student has um, that just goes so unnoticed. And so, you know, we have heard experiences um, with alternative schools, but I also find that a lot of the resources and help that students have at these alternative schools are because a lot of the staff and people and other students have gone through it themselves. They know. So it's kind of like they stand as like a guard at the door of like, look, I'm going to help you through this because I went through this too. This is why I'm working here. Um, and so you find like a little, a different sense of community of people who have been affected. All of us have been impacted by it in some way. Um, but it is really sad that we have to even get there, that we have to have students out of school for years, you know, fighting, literally fighting a school district to be educated. And what y'all also make me think about is, you know, how does medicine actually play into that too? And it, it, I think there were some statistics where the rise in, for example, the diagnosis of ADHD and different kind of like behavioral, what is classified in medicine as like behavioral disorders really rose as the prison industrial complex also began to really um, take root in our communities and how a lot of times, um, this medicalization of different behaviors as kind of individual problems rather than really questioning, you know, what are the different things in the environment? What are the lack of resources and understanding and emotional care that's being given to um, these communities? Why are we not questioning that in medicine, but rather using kind of medical terms of which to punish people um, that can further push them into this, this pipeline that y'all are talking about? And so. That really made me think more about that too. And um, I know that everyone has been like celebrating with y'all in terms of the work that y'all are doing in BOP. And I think um, both of you have also talked about how you have been doing this work even before um, kind of the big, uh, everyone's been kind of talking about it in June in terms of in response to the murder of George Floyd. However, this work has really started since um, 2011 and even before that. And so can you kind of talk about like what has been um, y'all's perspectives on the evolution of this issue? Have y'all seen any major changes in how people have responded? And within that, can you also expand on the People's Plan as well as the George Floyd resolution um, that we celebrate with y'all for doing? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really been quite um, an evolution, like you said. So, like I said earlier, Bob started in 2009. And so um, that was before Black Lives Matter and before kind of like Black was back in and, you know, being revolutionary and radical was really in. So even in 2009, as a small grassroots organizing group asking, um, you know, for support to just organize Black people, that was actually an uphill battle for us. And so uh, we had to even fight in that right to really uplift the importance of investing in Black uh, communities specifically and investing in Black leadership development and organizing. Um, and so with the rise of organizations like BLM and uh, similar organizations and really with the, the grassroots organizations that have been on the ground, um, 
you know, not in the mainstream for years and years, uh, we started to kind of collectively shift this narrative of that, you know, black communities don't care, that they don't want to be invested in, and that they don't have leaders that would fight for change. Um, and so we've definitely, you know, with the rise of kind of consciousness and information, we've seen like people more open to having these conversations. Um, so in 2011, when we uh, launched our police free schools campaign, that was also a crazy space to be in. So, cause we've sat in this area of education and criminal justice. And so some of the people working on education issues weren't really ready to fully attack a, a police department. They weren't there yet in 2011. Um, a lot of people wanted to kind of uh, stick to these kind of safe reforms. Um, and this idea of kind of looking at how do we um, correct discipline, which we did look at too. Um, but I would say kind of like around 2016, really, when we saw a lot of uh, police brutality at the uh, of black men, you know, of murders, we saw like a kind of national rising uh, with incidents like Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, like those incidents really seemed to kind of wake, wake up a mainstream consciousness that really allowed for the conversation to get started. Um, and I think that a lot of the work outside of the direct uh, organizing work is about this narrative. Um, it's about getting people to change their ideas of what safety is for black people, what safety is for community, um, even what health is, you know, a lot of these times we're thinking like, okay, if the kids aren't suspended or expelled, they're good, but there's this mental health aspect uh, with the trauma of being watched and policed and antagonized, you know, that really impacts um, how kids engage in school. And so as that kind of consciousness and people are kind of learning more, um, and it's kind of like in your face, people couldn't ignore after we were just blatantly getting murdered uh, over and over in the streets. Um, it seemed that people were more open uh, to this idea of abolition and police abolition. And so um, we just recently won June 24th, uh, the complete elimination of the Oakland School Police Department. Um, OUSD was the first district uh, or the only district in Alameda County. I think they have about 18 districts that had its own police department. And so we knew that this was a racialized targeted kind of policing disciplinary issue. Um, and so we completely eliminated it. It's been a nine year fight. Um, and with the George Floyd resolution, it's really a call for a complete transformation, um, a culture shift. So really investing in the resources that students need to succeed, uh, like mental health therapists, like mentors, like after school programs, the things that kind of get to a holistic environment um, and transforming. So we're saying police free schools. We don't want it to be replaced by something that's like the police. We want us to start really imagining what our uh, communities could look like without police because lit quite literally enough is enough. And uh, Des, did you have anything you wanted to add? Because I know it was a big moment and it's been, it's kind of unreal. Like it happened in June, it hasn't really synced in and we're already kind of in implementation phase. So it's just really like a foggy space right now for me personally. Yeah, I mean, well, you guys also asked kind of about like the whole process too. And I think it's kind of to what Jasmine was mentioning is like, it's been two battles constantly about um, trying to shift the narrative on black people's capacity and capability and why it's important to uplift black organizing. So, you know, you're, you're blatantly arguing basically with people about, well, why black, but why, when it's like, we know who's, you know, at the brunt of these issues. So why do we have to, um, convince you guys that we're the people, the most impacted people sh who should be leading the fight, who should be driving the work? Um, and that really speaks to, you know, a connotation in a lot of people's minds about our capacity and our capability. So we stand as an example of how successful Black organizing can be, how imperative Black organizing is, 
Um, and then at the same time that, that, you know, safety conversation, which even as Jasmine mentioned, like even in the moments of reforming and doing small reforms, which were always just the road to abolition. And we always knew it was going to be complete abolition. Um, so many people want to stop there. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm noticing now we had, you know, downtimes where we didn't have a lot of support and we were really struggling to get that issue and that messaging in the floor, in the front of people. Um, and then we got a whole bunch of support and then it was like, whoa, thousands of followers, thousands of support, yada, yada, yada. And then now it's kind of like a dip in the time where now we're going to be like, okay, all you people who were so excited and, you know, who are supporting us now it's time to actually work. Now it's time to literally work, not just share, you know, infographics and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see the ebb and flow of, um, contribution and, you know, engagement with people. Um, and then also now there's been a lot of moments where, you know, we always kind of battle with people to remind them that we need to be in front and that the most impacted people need to be driving the work. And then you kind of have to gently remind people along the way, because now that we're doing implementation work, it's like now all these people who have implemented other stuff in other places want to get ahead and they want to work and they want to tell us how to do it. And it's like, you know, it's a humbling experience for you to really sit back and listen to people who are most impacted, even for me. And so other people in the organization, like I was impacted like 10 years ago or something like that. So I'm still speaking from that time, but there's students in our organization now um, because we are multi-generational who can really drive us and speak to what's happening right now in Oakland schools and their experience. Um, so I think the ebb and flow has definitely been an interesting thing, but that win was just, it, it, it was so monumental. And I don't know if people really understand the, the gravity of that. An entire police department has been dissolved by a black organizing um, or a black organization, you know, that's huge. So again, we're just like, I, I'm just still kind of like relishing in that. And it's still kind of like unreal um, and just looking forward to the future and being able to look back and see police free schools implemented, hopefully all over the place and nationwide is gonna be amazing. Yeah, I just wanted to say congrats to you guys for that. Like, that is such a huge accomplishment. And Real. I'm just so happy. I'm, like, so proud. And literally, I actually discovered Black Organizing Project, I think, maybe, like, two weeks before that happened. So I just, like, heard about you guys through a podcast and then followed you on Twitter. And then I saw these tweets. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, wait, there are people who are actually, like, who have been doing the work, but it's actually paying off, you know? Because I feel like people are doing this work constantly, but there's always these obstacles and things and the white supremacy that's really getting in the way of them being able to make the changes that they really want to make. And so I think like reading that tweet that day, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is happening. Like I am just so freaking stoked. And I guess part of me is just, I don't know. I think a part of me is shocked that it took so long or like that people didn't really get it. And like I mentioned before that, like that side project, I was learning that like these police officers in schools are referred to as resource officers or like resource counselors or something like that, which is completely misleading because they're cops. They're the feds. You know what I mean? Like they're not like, they're not they're, I don't know what resources they're actually providing. So I'm just really curious to know more about like some, some of the obstacles that you guys face and like had to overcome, you know, getting rid of these um, resource quote unquote officers um, that are really just police officers and sort of what that experience was like, like what was, I mean, I'm sure most of Oakland was down for this, but 
you know, for the people who were, were opposing, maybe not, I seen some heads shaking, maybe clearly it wasn't, maybe not everyone was down for the cause. So I'm curious to know, like, what were people's biggest um, concerns? Because when I hear about having police in schools, that personally does not make me feel safer. But I'm guessing, like, for some teachers or some people, it does make them feel safer. So I would just love to hear you guys' perspective on that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say, well, yeah, so to your point, you would think that everybody, especially being like Oakland, being such like a social justice, Black Panther, you know, like ground zero, um, you think that we'd have a lot of support. Um, and we have a lot of people who I think play progressive and play like they, you know, they're serious about our mission and who even go as far as to like agree with us. Um, even in public, but then sometimes kind of like retract that and then kind of like, I totally agree that we should have police free schools. Um, so let's sit down with police and talk about how to make it happen. And so, you know, it's, it, it's very complicated. Um, but I think that one of the biggest struggles that we've had is literally confronting that confronting people um, escalating people as to why, you know, if you agree with us and you say that you stand for police-free schools and for sanctuary for students, which is what we're talking about, um, why is this such an issue? Why can't you say that? Why can't you vocalize that? Um, and I think it's kind of been the same. People on all levels, I think, theoretically agree with us and they agree with police-free schools, but it's scary to a lot of people to blatantly say and to stay in front of people in the community, in front of oftentimes so many police officers who are lined wherever you are and looking at them and saying, we don't believe that police have a place in schools. They serve absolutely no purpose. Um, they further hinder our students' learning. Um, you know, so I think that's been probably the biggest thing besides the literal work and, you know, the data and the policies and all that stuff. It's been really just shattering the narrative that police equal safety. They don't equal safety in our communities, at least. And I've never known a time in history when they have equaled safety. Um, but to your point also, we are also dealing with a lot of educators, staff, other people who have a lot of implicit bias, who have a lot of anti-Black, you know, racism deeply rooted, um, but they still think that they're progressive, but then they're still calling, you know, the, the police to stand by and preserve because, so-and-so didn't take her headscarf off or, you know, a lot of things like that. So it's a lot of bias and a lot of racism that's, that's really kind of seeped into educating and curriculum and the schools on all levels. So um, I think like, you know, that's really been one of the biggest things. Um, and then Jazz, I know you have a whole bunch to add to that too. Yeah, no, I think I, I pretty much agree with you. Like a lot of the times to answer that question, we say it's this narrative idea. Really, it's getting people to question, why do you think black and brown students deserve police on their campuses? You know, why don't all uh, campuses have police? You know, so it's just really this idea that people really want to hold on to the system. It's hard for people to let go. And so this process is like about dismantling and unlearning and you have to have agency um, and to do so. You know, a lot of people benefit um, off of the way the system is set up right now. And so people don't really want to let go of that power. Um, so I think ideologically, that is one of our toughest fights for really people to see, you know, black people and youth even as human, you know, um, some of the kind of frivolous 
uh, things that we get pushback are like these theoretical things like what if there's a school shooter you know um and so we just have to really it's a it's a mind game at that point um our executive director she loves to say like do we pay for firefighters to stand on corners waiting for fires to happen we don't we don't we don't do that we actually just invest in the fire hydrants and we put sprinklers in our houses and actually create the infrastructure necessary to be able to respond you know and so similarly like having police posted up criminalizing like you we can't really continue to say that it's for safety you know especially if it's not um proportionate across all communities um and Des did mention some of the issues with um, inside of the school. So it's a whole ecosystem. So we knew that um, abolishing the police department, there was much more work to be done than that. It's about transformation. So in 2018, I believe, um, we launched our Black Sanctuary Pledge. And that's after we realized that teachers and school staff were making over 6,000 calls to police on students. Um, and for most of the reasons, it was unsubstantiated. It was for standing by, preserving the peace. It was behavior issues. And so for us, we had to have real direct conversations with faculty and say, hey, like, you're in this work to actually contribute to youth life, and you're actually being complicit excuse me, in the school to prison pipeline by calling police on students. And so we created a pledge in which we got OEA, Oakland Education Association, which is OUSD's teachers union, to sign on. And so that was a struggle conversation. We had to do listening sessions. We had to explain the data. We had to have tough conversations because teachers are like, well, hey, we don't have the resources to deal with behavioral issues. So we understand it's an ecosystem, but I think the first step is really being ready to have those tough conversations and knowing that this is hundreds and hundreds of years in the making of harm. It is going to be tough work, but just um, ignoring the work is just, you know, further putting our students, Black people in particular, like, down in a hole and, that, and that's what's not right you know um and i would say general challenges is like we're doing black organizing so a lot of the times our staff our members as we're fighting against these systems we're directly impacted by them so we have formerly incarcerated members we have that with staff we have um uh staff that's dealing with youth there's uh, kids that are going through the school to prison pipeline right now you know and having to come to a nine to five and really work you know is hard you know and we're committed to developing black leaders and that comes with um addressing all the issues that you know are that come with our community and and the beauty so that work is hard it requires a lot of resources you know um and so i think that could uh, that was definitely a challenge um and lastly um the, our policy wins so uh you know, we went into the game with the policies. We always had a clear vision for abolition. So even in 2011, we wrote down for our um, strategic plan that we would eliminate the department by 2020. So I just want to note that was kind of manifested by our founding members and our founding executive director. Um, so we had a vision for abolition, but with some of the with the reforms like des said some people wanted to stay there and sometimes they use that as a way to be like okay well look you you eliminated a few officers so you should be good or we took out a couple million this year um but really we use those policies to gather data to then use against uh them to say hey like you're saying suspensions are going down but they're disproportionate you know why are black students 26 percent of the school population but 73 percent of arrests that's you know that's not okay so i think that's like a double-edged sword it was used kind of against us it's kind of makes it feel like not as radical like we'll be okay with reforms but you know as long as you're accountable to a base and the community like we kept our vision for abolition and that's uh, what a lot of our work was rooted in so, so. 
Yeah, so much of your work actually reminds me of um, my journey through all of this in the education system. Like I grew up in a neighborhood and my parents didn't want me to go to school in the bad neighborhood, quote unquote, whatever that means, right? And so we were like, we went on a bus, we went, you know, to school and there, you know, elementary school, middle school, I wasn't really aware of these things, but, you know, I was kind of like when it came to high school, like the high school I went to started as a magnet and then ended as a charter. And in that time, like most of my friends stopped getting the permit to go to that school. And most of them actually ended up at the alternative school, which was like in a corner in this school. Um, and all of these things were very like behavioral related. Um, and, you know, the, we had a cop that lived like on campus, like he had his office on campus, stayed there. Everyone knew who he was. And actually some of the girls, the way that they would like bully one another is call and say like, oh, you're not part of the district. You don't belong here. And so the cop would show up at your house to see if that you actually did belong to the district or not. Um, and so after a while, I like went back and I got into, I really love teaching. So I went back to the elementary school that I went to and really saw what um, you all were talking about, about like this implicit bias. And it just really broke my heart about like these behavioral issues, like children in kindergarten with behavioral issues the teachers then spread like gossip from one to the other about, hey, this child has issues, has this, has that. And so then they get like hyper surveillance, like they, there's hyper surveillance of this child throughout their entire like elementary school career. I was there for three years and that just like kept repeating, repeating, repeating. And no surprise, these are black and brown children that are being like, not just by cops, but by their teachers, like every single thing that they do is criticized. Um, and so I think all of that is to say that so much of your work, you know, you were talking about ebb and flow and like how it's foggy now, but I feel like so much of your work since 2011 was this really like planning, like getting all the data, getting all the information. And then like this thing happened and boom, like this was your action, right? But really all of the meat is in like those years leading up to it. And so now like in this new phase of like this fogginess, like what does this actually look like? Like what, cause I think this is where you're like the power of organizing lies is like getting ready for the next boom hit, you know, um, to the next goal that you all have for each other. Yeah, I definitely want to emphasize too. I, I don't think we can emphasize enough, like how much work, um, legwork had been gone into this for years. Um, and we just happen, I think, you know, divine timing. And I think George Floyd's passing was the catalyst for giving us the momentum that we needed. But we love to remind people like we were doing this for so many years, we actually had already presented um, what would be the George Floyd resolution months, like maybe two months before that. And we were voted down, no, we were there to like 10, 30, 11 at night at the school board meeting, waiting, thinking we were gonna make history then, and we were shot down. Um, and so, you know, we went into kind of like the rebuild phase and then it was kind of like, whoa, like Jasmine said earlier, the nation is on fire. There's so much going on. Like now is the time people are actually not afraid to talk about it. Um, so, you know, that kind of gave us that momentum that we really needed. And so I think, you know, it's very unfortunate about the continued um, police violence and police terror, even over the last weekend or the week with you know, the, the young man being murdered, the other man who was shot in his back and is now in stable condition, like, it kind of unfortunately takes that ebb and flow in the macrocosm of things to remind people like, 
we won, it felt amazing. And so people kind of sat back and they're just waiting to follow our lead. But then you wake up and you see the headlines and you see, oh my God, it's happening again. It re-triggers and it re-traumatizes people, but it also kind of reinvigorates them like, okay, now I need to see what can I help? How can I join today to help something? Um, and so it's unfortunate that that has to happen, but that's a reality in today's society. So now being in the implementation process, um, it's a little bit more informed because we're not just kind of rallying around people to do an action or to get traction. We're asking people to really be involved in the community-driven process of implementing police-free schools. You know, we won, we eliminated police, but if we don't actively work and jump on it immediately, these systems will just recreate themselves, as we've said before. Um, you know, so I think that's probably what I would say to that. And then Jasmine, I know you have something to say about the implementation process as well. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, um, I think, yeah, you just from you saying that just reminded me of like the challenges of the implementation part. So definitely want to uplift what does said like policy is one thing but practice is another and so we could have all these policies and all these laws and actually people listening to them and following through and um literally with the spirit and the intention of the the policy or law that's what's important like even after we won george floyd in june we had to immediately start attending and um be in coalition with the defund OPD uh, coalition because the city was gonna was trying to use our win to say, hey, OUSD doesn't have any more police. Like we need more money for our police budget so we could go police the schools. And so just like Des said, the system is always gonna retract, retract, retract. And so I think, uh, you know, what you said is very critically important. So, you know, policy is one thing, practice is another. It's implementation time and it's a long, Hall. It's not just a reaction to a murder. It's not just a rally. It is going to be going to the school board meetings, watching them, informing BOP and other grassroots organizations about what you hear about the school system um, and really keeping the, those school board members accountable, you know, and, and it's a lot of work. It's draining work, but it does work. Um, it does work. And uh, the more the merrier, honestly. But. Um, I love how Jasmine, you were talking about like, um, you know, the next step forward as you're implementing, it's all about transformation. And it's about how at one point we were living in someone else's imagination about police and schools. And now y'all are recreating a new imagination. And so I really also loved how y'all were talking about how people who were formerly incarcerated and people who have been affected by police and schools are at the center of this vision. And I'm wondering if y'all can maybe just uh, be more specific or just give examples of how community voices are centered in this process and how a lot of that is possible in that imagination moving forward. I'm, I'm going to let Des really jump in because I just think that her story is a prime example of how community is centered. So we, I think Nakia recruited you. So we literally met Des probably doing street outreach. So we knock on doors. We go meet people in the community. I'm not sure. I'll let her tell her story, but I'm pretty sure she was recruited by uh, one of our other staff members. And we, uh, like she said, like we had no idea she was someone that was impacted by the school to prison pipeline. And so uh, we, you know, got to know Des. We had a one-on-one -on -one with her. Uh, we introduced her to the work. And so through that kind of development, there's a politicization that that happens. Um, I, I heard Nicole say like, when you're in school, you didn't really know that this was happening. Like you, you notice the little individual things and I could relate to that. Like 
I noticed the bigotry of my teachers, but I thought it was an individual thing. Like, oh, they don't like me. Um, because I wasn't a part of a larger community organization, I didn't know that this is actually a system targeting a group of people. And so um, similarly, I think like the work, like how we met Des, it, it kind of shifts um, this idea that the system that took so much power away from you, like you could actually fight it back and you could regain your power. And I think that that's what we do in like everyday kind of work. Like we're, we look for those that are suspended, expelled to bring into the organization to strategize. So our people's plan, our, um, our boss campaign was launched by our members. Our members actually informed the direction because we really, truly, truly believe that you have to, like the people that are impacted know the solutions because they deal with it day to day. You know, they have the creativity, they have the lived uh, experiences and the internal resource to imagine, you know, and we're just often not given the, the platform to do so. Um, and, and Des, do you have anything to add? Because I, I didn't want to tell you. Yeah, uh, I think absolutely. What's funny too is when we talk about like letting the most impacted people drive the work, I don't, I don't know if I know a black person who has not been impacted in some way. Um, so that's the thing is like our members, like we have parents, we have students, we have, you know, former um, incarcerated people, former expelled people like myself. And so all of us have been impacted in some way. Um, but like Jasmine was saying, a lot of the work is also kind of like empowering those people. So we have a lot of parents who like my parents just accepted whatever was happening to me. I never had a conversation with my parents about, is this something particular to me or is there a larger issue going on? Um, and you would think that maybe that was an idea in their mind because I had been affected by that as young. You have a student who was in, you know, like gifted and talented education, but then also being pushed out of school. So it wasn't a lack of like what I could do. So it was obviously a larger issue. Um, and I was being targeted for being black, but I wasn't being targeted for being specifically myself. Um, and my experience within the school was also, I kind of like, I filled that position. I filled that, that position in school um, and that one person in everybody's class who's, you know, too loud, talks too much, um, that kind of thing. And so I think even amongst my peers, I was always kind of like painted as like a bad kid not that I'm a horrible criminal person, but it's like, oh, I'm a troublemaker. I get in trouble. And I even believed that as my identity for so long, up until just a few years ago, probably before I got involved with Bob, to where I really realized like, okay, this is such a bigger issue. And they will find somebody to fill that void and to fill that position to be the scapegoat for why you guys aren't servicing students the way you should be. Um, because we're just bad students, you know, and a lot of the conversations that we're always having are talking and focus about behavioral issues, um, what students aren't and are doing, but we seldom hear people talk about what students don't have. We never really hear about um, people on the actual school sites being accountable for how they're not servicing their students, being accountable for having, you know, one counselor for every 1,200 students or something crazy, but you have at least three or four officers on payroll. Those are real issues. And I know for myself, a lot of my behavior was coming from um, me being disserviced in the community in general, in my life in general, because Black people were just so disenfranchised intentionally. So we never really address why students do a lot of the things that they do. And our students act just like every other student. And I think that's a conversation that we always have with the district too, is like, you guys use safety as an example, but you have students who are just up the hill in the better affluent areas who 
are in the same district but don't have police officers or who don't have um, three levels of police officers coming on campus. Um, so I think that's a big thing too. But getting back to the most impacted people, um, like I said, all of us have been impacted in some way. So while we're doing the work, while we're literally in the campaign, we have parents who, like Jasmine said, are coming in late because they're having meetings with the teachers over and over because the teachers won't acknowledge the needs of their students. And then we have other people in the organization who have been incarcerated and affected by that. Um, I think there's a statistic that we use a lot, which is 60% of students without, or black men without GEDs, 60% of them will be incarcerated. In California, that jumps to 90%. So 90% of black men who don't have a GED find themselves incarcerated and in prison. Um, that direct correlation right there, you know, should be enough to kind of talk about the issue and really catapult to get to the, the, um, the solution that we need. But, um, you know, I just, I can't say more about being most impacted and, and informing the work, letting people know that, okay, you have people who say that this is how it should go. And you have on paper that officers only do this, but I was, somebody who experienced that, you know, officers don't call your parents after they arrest you. They did have me apprehended for up to three hours before anybody knew where I was. You guys didn't inform my parents, you know, all the things that actually happen in real life, because that's how things go on paper. It says one thing. And in real life, you know, it says the complete opposite. So I think that's what's most important too about letting people, especially students in schools now inform us and let us know what is actually really happening. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I feel like also a lot of what you're saying is that like you heal through doing things like this, right? Sharing your experiences and being like, wait, it's not just me. It's not me that is broken. It's something's wrong with me. It's the system, right? And I think to a lot of our audience, like if you're going to professional school, that doesn't stop. Like the profession, like school is school is school. Like you will feel less than everyone else right? You will feel that there's something wrong with you. And you have to hold your school accountable for those emotions that you are holding. Because for instance, like, there's a couple of um, requirements that our school holds, right? Where it's like, in times of stress, you will know how to deal with what's going on. Um, in times of, like, emotions, you are responsible for being aware of your emotions and of everyone else's emotions and how to deal with that. That is something that we have to graduate with. But there's actually very few classes that are taught to us about those things and guess who out of that out of all the students is most impacted from those qualifying that are not straight up taught right and it's the students of color it's the first generation students and i think um so much of this is part of your own healing journey um to be like and for me personally like this has been a huge step of unlearning that like there's nothing wrong with me right it's these systems and i think like i just hear that from both of you when you're talking about this and about the work and about centering these voices of the people that are mostly impacted, it's really like, go out there and tell the world there's nothing wrong with you because that's beautiful and that's what's the truth. Okay, don't make us cry now, Sister Nicole. Damn, um, <laughs> that is so true. Like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing inherently bad about you. You mentioned like feeling like you were a bad kid does. Um, and I think it's, amazing that for both of you and hopefully for many of our listeners now they're coming to the realization that it's 
not anything inherent within them, but there's something inherent within the systems in which we participate in and are forced to be a part of. Um, and I just think there's going to be a lot of learning and unlearning about who we are um, in the process. So thank you both for sharing your stories. Because um, I know that's like, that's some personal stuff, you know, but I think our listeners will definitely grow and I'm growing just hearing it and thinking about my own experiences. So that's dope. Yeah, I think like one of our tools of organizing is storytelling, like, and you guys hit it right on the head, like it truly is healing to take the story back, especially as black people and marginalized people, like there's a constant narrative being spoke about us everywhere you go, like you're bombarded with it. And so part of shifting the narrative is telling that new story, telling it from a different angle. And I think, um, at BOP and like what we try to do is we pride ourselves in really bringing the real voices to the forefront because these are the voices that folks need to hear like you know um so I, I definitely agree that storytelling is a healing process um our ancestors and our freedom fighters before us have always used different forms of storytelling that's like a way of telling our own history and stuff and um definitely looking forward to continuing to change the story of history you know that that that's going to happen especially um, looking forward to as the world's on fire currently. So, but I do, I definitely agree with that about the healing aspect of it all. I think another aspect to it too, which is one of the things I love most about being part of BOP, being part of the family is being able to not only be developed myself, but also watch, you know, the other members be developed primarily parents too. I know there's um, a lot of parents, one particular in my mind who just years ago um, kind of felt victimized herself by why her students were being, why her kids were being targeted, you know, kind of like helpless when you go into school and you don't know, you know, really the process of the system, you're kind of in the same position as your student. You're just being talked at, you're being told, you know, what's wrong with you. And obviously that might reflect to your parenting. Like, well, if, some, if you're telling me something's wrong with my kid, there might be something wrong with my parenting. And some of those parents who had been in that position just years ago, fast forward to today are some of the most vocal and impactful um, organizers on our team who are in these meetings and who will blatantly stop people in their tracks and, you know, call them out on their bias and hold them accountable for perpetuating the narrative um, and for ignoring that these systems are intentional in the way that they're marginalizing us. And so just being able to experience that and watch that too, is it's, it's amazing because beyond this work, we are shifting the narrative in our own community and we're watching us be empowered more and more to where we'll, you know, hopefully we won't have to be in the position of where our parents and teachers, I mean, parents and students are being targeted because they've been so empowered and uplifted and continue to do that in their community to where, you know, we know our rights, we know what we deserve. We know what is a right for us and our families in our communities. So I think it's just an amazing thing. Um, Des, you made me think of two things. So yes, development is super, super empowering. Um, it makes me think of my own story of how I got to BOP. So I, I currently am a member and um, I'm the development and communications manager. Um, and development is fundraising and uh, grant writing. And so I came to BOP with no prior organizing experience and no grant writing experience and really no professional communications experience. I was a journalism major. Um, and so it was because the 
leaders of the organization saw something in me that perhaps, you know, a professor or another job didn't see and, and decided to intentionally um, develop me and, and um, and resource with me with like um, the aid that I needed to learn how to do grant writing. And so that's what I do for the organization. And I think like that spirit is just so contagious. And that's why I'm still here. That's what makes me love the work is because I truly believe that our people have just been disenfranchised and that if we actually take the time to resource people and develop people that, you know, the limits are, you know, they're endless. Um, and so I really think that like, that's like a kind of pillar of the, the work and something that we're definitely committed to. Um, and then something else you said about kind of the parents organizing. So BOP is multi-generational. And I think what you said was just so true, Des, that, you know, a lot of times parents are getting healing uh, through this. So I feel like the system sometimes likes to separate things and get us going against each other and stuff. So a lot of the times it's like there's youth groups and then there's parent groups. Um, and so Bob uh, intentionally organizes multi-generationally because these systems impact whole communities. It's not just the, the youth that gets impacted when they're uh, suspended. You know, parents oftentimes have to take off of work or not, you know, they're faced with those decisions. Uh, when you have to go to, um, these expulsion hearings, you need a parent there. So youth aren't advocating for themselves. And so when you kind of put these two groups against each other, it's not really real um, to how our society functions. Um, and also there's assumptions like, okay, you're an adult, so you're supposed to have it all together. But again, if you're a part of brown and black communities or marginalized communities, you've oftentimes been impacted or pushed out of school. So who's to say that you're going to know um, how to get through these processes over your kids? Like oftentimes, sometimes our kids are teaching our parents and otherwise, you know. So we really try to, through our organizing, kind of shift the narratives, break down those, um, those beliefs that aren't really true to our community and how we operate. So I think it's super important that you brought up the parent organizing work too, so. Thank you for bringing that up too, Jasmine. I'm really curious to know from either of you, what are things that we all can or should be doing to ending uh, policing in schools and ending the school to prison pipeline? Like, obviously you guys are doing amazing work in your organization, but what is something that we, like the listeners or just like other um, people who aren't doing that specific organizing work can do to support you guys? Oh, great. Yeah. Um, so first and foremost, I think like educating yourself on the issue is extremely important. And um, these are really big they're simple to us, um, but they're really like big issues. Um, they're rooted um, in years and years and years of um, anti-Black oppression. And so educate, educate yourself on the issue. I would also advise people to uh, join a nonprofit, join a grassroots community organization. A lot of um, the smaller groups are doing the real on the ground work and, you know, get overlooked by some of these larger groups, but they need the most resources. So really it's important as you're getting into this work, as you're becoming inspired and kind of agitated about the current climate is to don't feel like you have to re recreate the wheel because our ancestors have been doing this work for so long. It's really more so about educating yourself and finding out who are those players in your community that are doing the work that you're interested in, whether it be environmental issues, education issues, 
um, or what have you. It's just kind of doing your own due diligence and research and not feeling like, you know, you just created the, the ideology around the school to prison pipeline. Cause you know, there's been so many people before us that have died for this work or political prisoners that are still in prison right now for this work. Um, so it's a humbling work and it's not uh, what you might see on social media. It's not big speeches. Um, it's, you know, we need the volunteer help for people to make a hundred calls and, you know, only have 20 people show up to a meeting. Like that's the hard work Des was kind of talking about that we've done over the 10 years or mining databases to get information or looking over school board meeting agendas to really um, pick apart and see what the school board's trying to do. Like that's the kind of work that goes into our organization. Um, how you could help is, you know, really sign up for our e-newsletter, staying involved, um, donating. Um, we are in this implementation phase where we're asking for a collective community process. So we will be updating people through our social media channels and our e-newsletter on ways to specifically get engaged because um, we definitely need support, uh, volunteer support. Um, and yeah, that's what I would say right now. Until I'm going to hand it to Des. Yeah, I would just add... Um definitely like Jasmine said, uplifting the organizations who are small but mighty who have been doing the work. So many people have been doing the work, um, but it, it takes work in itself to find these organizations. Like, you know, a lot of you guys mentioned, you just came across Bob's work recently. Um, and so imagine so many people who, you know, in other states and, you know, who aren't so politically involved, they may not know. So it, it's kind of hard work to find people who are really impacting their, you know, immediate communities. Um, and I would say once people find their avenue or get involved, I think it's very important to take the emphasis off of individual and off of how you might be contributing to the work, because that gets really tricky. And sometimes it creates another level of issue of, you know, recognition or other things that you think you may be deserving of. And it kind of takes the highlight away from the issue and the most impacted people. Um, and to that point, we have a movement building and solidarity pledge that I wanted to uplift too, um, which we just highlighted recently on our social media, um, you know, especially our, our Instagram at Black Organizing Project. But um, it's a pledge with five different principles that we are asking people to follow to help build, um, move, you know, movement building with us. But to remind them to be mindful of different things like the humility of the work of, you know, like being humble and kind of taking a backseat to the people who are being most impacted. And they're really important principles to always have in your mind while you're doing this work. Um, I think, you know, doing this work, it always takes a little bit of course correcting, even for myself to look at those principles and remind myself how I can best serve the work for the overall goal. Um, you know, so I think that I, that's what I would say. Jasmine said everything else perfectly, definitely donate to us and any other small organization who absolutely needs it, uplifting our work and staying in tune with us. Amazing, thank you guys so, so much for sharing that and for giving us and our listeners uh, great advice on how to move forward. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Are there any like final thoughts or words of wisdom that you want to share? And that's okay if not to. I'm sorry to be putting you on the spot. Uh, but you guys have shared so much and like dropped so many gems throughout this entire episode thus far. Um, are there any like parting things that you really want us to know or to understand about the work that you do? Yes. 
No, um, I, definitely, I would say, you know, we grassroots community organizing does work. It, it truly does. Uh, we hope that uh, us winning the George Floyd resolution proves that. Um, and our plan is to continue to uplift uh, really that grassroots community organizing works. And so that is basically everything that we talked about is choosing to invest in the most impacted leaders, develop them, resource them, and uh, center community as you're making uh, solutions. Uh, we've been faced with a lot of adversity, um, but because we're accountable to a base, um, we're not kind of accountable to an individual, we're accountable to a base. So it allowed us to kind of weather those storms and stay clear, you know. Um, a lot of things could get kind of enticing, you know, when you start getting that kind of attention. And when you're accountable to a community, you realize it isn't about you, it's about something larger. And so that informs the decisions you make. Um, I'd also say organizing is, is hard work. So not, it doesn't always sound cool to like knock on doors or having 30 minute conversations with, you know, grandmas and aunties all the time and stuff. But those are the real people that are impacted by the systems. They have the resources, the knowledge that we need to really create the, the world that hasn't been created yet, you know? And so uh, you have to be in it for the long haul, you know, if you truly believe in liberation. Um, and I would say that, yes, we center black people, um, but we we truly believe that, you know, fighting for black people is a fight for everybody. And if we win, everybody wins. Um, and so that's kind of what I would say. I don't know if Des has anything. When black people are free, we are all free. I think Jasmine said it perfectly. Amen to that. Thank you yes. so, so much, Jasmine and Des. Yes. This is honestly my favorite episode. So thank y'all for the wisdom. <laughs> I know. Literally the wisdom, just how real y'all have been and like y'all's passion and love for the people really just shows and you can really hear it. And I'm just so grateful that the listeners really get to um, just like take it all in. So thank y'all for your presence. <laughs>